If you would turn with me this morning to Revelation chapter 3. Continue. Uh, we'll continue on looking at the letters to the churches uh, found in uh, the beginning of the book of Revelation. Um, specifically this morning, looking at the letter to the church in Laodicea, uh, which is the last letter that we come to. And um, though we come to the last letter, not. Um, We've recapped several times, and so we know that to each church, these were real specific churches, and these were real specific uh, problems that were going on within these churches, and this is historical fact that's laid out before us in these letters to the churches, but also as it's uh, within the Word of God, we understand that, it, that these are different stages that, that all churches find themselves in um, at one time or another. Um, usually in different stages and different parts. Um, and so this morning, as we go through these churches, we, we must ask ourselves, where are we doing well for the, the different churches we're commended, and where are we struggling or where are we failing as a church? And as we come to the church in Laodicea, uh, though there were other churches, again, that we've heard positive things said about them, there's nothing positive about the church in Laodicea. And so let's read uh, Revelation 3, 14 through 22. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat with my and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning. Again, as we come to your word, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. As we reside in a world whom considers truth to be subjective. Or open to debate. It can be different for every person. Father, we know that's a world of chaos. So, Father, we are blessed beyond measure that we can come to your word and we can find real truth. 
Father, sometimes that truth is glad to hear. Father, as we ponder what Christ has done for his church, what he has done for his people, and laying down his life for his enemy and redeeming them, and Father, you adopting them as children, as your children, those who once were your enemies and shook their fist at you, Father, you redeem them. What a joyous and amazing thing you've done for us. But Father, we also come to words that we don't like to hear, that are hard to hear. Yet, Father, we need to hear, and it's still truth. So, Father, this morning, would you draw us to your word? Would you help us to not discount something simply because it goes against what we like or our lifestyle or our culture? But that, Father, we would place it where it rightly belongs, at the top. And that we would evaluate ourselves rightly by the truth and not by a culture and not by our neighbors. And, Father, in that, would you give us the wisdom to draw near? Would you enable us and empower us to be zealous for you? Would you help us to repent? Father, we throw ourselves at your mercy. Father, please. Please bring us to repentance. Help us with the cry in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, as two weeks ago, I I began uh, I began looking at um, uh, Greg Greg went with you in the in the letter to the church at, to, in Philadelphia, um, and sometimes I said these letters can be hard. They can be hard to hear. They aren't positive. And this morning, as we come to this one, it's of no exception. This isn't positive in the slightest. And though we oftentimes, we, we, even as we think of eating, we, we, um, our culture especially, and um, we love dessert, and you hear silly things, and maybe not that silly, I don't know, um, uh, the, the story of the guy who wanted to be put in his coffin when he died and have a fork in his hand. So when everyone would ask, why do you have a fork in your hand? And, and his response was, well, when I go out to eat somewhere that's fancy and they take away our food at the, after we're done eating and they say, save your fork because the really good stuff is coming and you're going to want your fork for your dessert. And, um, and his response is, well, when I go to heaven, it's, it's when the really good stuff comes. It's, it's my dessert. and um, Yeah, I, I don't know why I'm there. But we love hearing good things. We love hearing positive things. It's why people oftentimes will keep teachers up around them, uh, such as uh, people like Joel Olstein that will only say positive things. Why? It's what our ears want to hear, and sometimes it's good for them to hear. 
But as you all know, if you um, if you decided today that from now on your your um, your lifestyle of, con- of fueling your body with food is only going to consist of ice cream and desserts, uh, you'll soon find that you will become very very sick. And so God doesn't call shepherds to only feed dessert. He doesn't call them to only feed milk. He calls them to feed meat, to feed healthy things, sometimes things that are hard to hear. Sometimes as children, and and you have no idea what you're missing if you don't like broccoli and asparagus. Because when you get older, at least for me, you really begin to appreciate those things. But they're good for you. And I believe as you mature in Christ, you begin to desire less desserts and, and more of the good things. So anyway, I give you a big introduction to say this morning as we come to the Word of God, it's it's not dessert. It, it can, this is this I, I I struggle to hold back the tears and even as we sing this morning, how hard this is to hear. And yet it's good for us. And so this morning I pray that we would hear. And so let's, let's, let's start at the beginning in verse 14. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Um, we, we oftentimes, uh, I know as a, as a young person, and for quite a long time, I said amen after I prayed, and yet I, I only saw that as, well, that's what people do after they pray. And um, who, who even, you don't have to raise your hand, but who even knows what it means? Um, and we can do, we can do a, a quick translation, and um, we could say just on the surface it means um, it is as it is said, or um, it's our, our affirmation that this is, this is correct. And as we pray together, oftentimes we'll, we'll all say amen at the end, agreeing with what was just prayed. But in this culture, it's, it's even more than that. It, it's almost the, you can have the illustration of when, when someone would write, maybe a king would write a proclamation to the people, and he would write, he'd probably have a scribe or someone write it down. But at the end of it, the king, what he would do oftentimes is he'd have a ring with a symbol on it, and he would he would dip this, um, he, they would pour wax onto this paper, and he would push his ring onto the wax, that his symbol would be embossed into this this letter or this proclamation that would be written, and it was essentially it was his amen, his confirmation, his seal that this is as I've said that it is. And in this text, as it says, the words of the amen, it means that, that Christ is the final, it is what I say. It, he is the authority. He is the one who speaks truth. He is the only one. God is the only one who, who speaks the truth. He lays it out before him. This is the way I say it is. And we, we have silly things to illustrate that with lying. We say, well, how come how come God can't lie? Because if he was going down the road and he pointed at a cow and he said, that's a giraffe, what happens? It turns into a giraffe. Right? What he speaks happens. What he speaks 
is true. And so if it wasn't a giraffe before, it quickly becomes one instantaneously because he is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. He knows what is correct. He is truth. What does the scripture say? I am the way, the truth, the truth. He is the truth. It's not just that he tells the truth. It's that he actually is the truth. He is the true witness. And, and finally, it says the beginning of God's creation. Notice what it doesn't say, and, and I think this is intentional, because they're battling within the Laodicea church more bad theology, such bad theology that it's heretical. This teaching that, that we see pop up in, in other, like the Jehovah Witnesses and different people, that says, well, Christ is the first creation. So what, what this means is, is that, uh, what they would say this means is, well, when God started creating things, the first thing that he created was Christ. And if I said that to you, not only should the hair on your neck stand up, but you should probably come up here, the elders especially, they should come up here and drag me out of here physically, if need be, and say, you must stop talking. Why? Because it's heretical. The Father didn't create the Son. The Father is God. The Son is God. What does it say in the beginning was the Word? The Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. It's not, it's not the beginning of God's creation, but he is, He's in the beginning when God created. It's not, the, it's not that God first created Christ, but that, that Christ was there, God the Son was there in the beginning, that he actually is Christ is the creator. He actually did the creating. Why? Because he is God. And we come back to the Trinity. And so oftentimes, and we've hit on this much in the past, and I don't want to hit on it too much today, when we begin to mangle or to, to scripture twist inside the Trinity, we quickly find ourselves outside of the truth. And if we find ourselves outside of the truth, it doesn't matter if you believe in a man named Jesus, he can't save you because he's not the Jesus that we read of in Scripture. Um, one last thought that we've thrown out before. If Christ was created, if he isn't God, he can't withstand the wrath of God. He must be an eternal being, or he can't even withstand the punishment that you deserve. And if he can't withstand the punishment you deserve, he wasn't punished for it. If he wasn't punished for it, you are still in your sins. So we see this combating of the Trinity, that he, Christ, is the final authority. God is the only authority. He is the faithful and true witness. He tells the truth. In the, in the past, we've seen that he, his eyes, um, he, he sees with this illustration of almost laser beams coming out of his eyes because he sees directly to the heart. He isn't deceived by your outer surface. He isn't deceived by your smiles and your uh, false religion. He isn't deceived by any of it. Though you and I can deceive others, we can um, put on the face, we can put on the suit, we can 
uh, be good Reformed Baptists, and we can even behave really well while there are people around. But in that, you are not deceiving Christ. He knows. He knows how you behave at home. He knows how you treat your wife. He knows how you treat your children. He knows if you're discipling them or not. He knows if you know him. He knows if you pray. He knows if you desire him. He knows if you read his word. He knows if you even care to know him. He isn't deceived by a changing of the surface. He's the true witness. So let's continue on so we can get to the point. Revelation 3, 15 through 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now when you look at the Greek, that word spit, I think is probably a little bit weak. It, it also has, we can also translate that, I will spew you. I will vomit you out of your out of my mouth. It's, it's, it's a violent release. It's a, it's a violent, get you out of my mouth. And in this text, it's, it's illustrating to the Laodiceans much about who they are. Because Laodicea, um, and, and we'll come to this next verse, Laodicea was a very wealthy city. It was the, the wealthiest, uh, I think there's three major big wealthy cities. I think that it was probably the wealthiest of all three of those cities. The one, one thing that, um, the one problem they had is their water system wasn't adequate for the number of people that lived there. And so um, when we think of their wealth, I think of, let me, let me come back to the water. I think it was six, around 60 or 70 A.D., there was a massive earthquake that, that laid hold to Laodicea and did much destruction to the city. And Laodicea did something that I've never heard of before. You know what Laodicea did? When the, the federal, the governor of that area came and offered assistance, Laodicea's response was, we don't need your help. We've got this. You forgot, Governor, we're the wealthy people here. We don't need the, the, the help of the state or the help of the, the federal government. Now, imagine that. Just a few years ago, um, it's probably been several years ago now, uh, there was a state, as you know, I'm in no way to be political in this, but there was a state on the, the West Coast who was having much discussion about potentially seceding from the Union because they, they hated our president so bad. Um, and it was on the news one night, and I, you know, people were saying, well, they're, they're going to be serious about this. And I'm like, yeah, who cares? Um, anyway, what was comical about it all was like a week later, they had the, the wildfires, and they were applying to the federal government for assistance in helping with these wildfires. Like, Wait, a week ago, you didn't want you. We were so terrible that you didn't want to be a part of us, and now uh, you're you're wanting help. That wasn't Laodicea. Now you guys know government well enough. Can you envision that? Federal government offers to help, and someone says no. 
we don't want your filthy money. That's Laodicea. This isn't just this isn't the church. This is the town as a whole. And so um, Laodicea was very very wealthy. They, they envisioned there was no problem they would come against that they couldn't fix on their own. They didn't need outside help. The one problem that Laodicea did have, though, coming back to the water system, is that the water that they could get wasn't wasn't enough or substantial for the number of people that lived there. And so, though they had some cities on the, both sides of them, one city was supplied in their water by hot springs, um, and these hot springs, uh, you know, caused them to have good water. And then on the other side of them, there was there was a city that was fed by by cold water. I can't remember exactly if it was a spring or or something like that. That uh, they also had good water. Laodicea had not the water that was needed, and so. They said, we can fix this. We have money, right? And so what they did is, um, I think it was around five miles, they created an aqueduct system that would have water travel for five miles to their city. And what would happen during this five-mile travel, if you, any of you have ever played in a creek, you'll know that most of the time, creeks are cooler than it is outside, especially a spring-fed creek can be really cold. If you've ever canoed along and got close to where the spring feeds in a creek and you jumped out of your canoe, you'll quickly find that this is really cold water. But if you were to travel that water through an aqueduct system for five miles, what happens to the water? It's not cold anymore. And not only is it not cold anymore, this isn't a natural uh, transportation of the water. And so anytime we typically do anything unnatural with transporting water, we get all kinds of stuff in it, and bugs, and, and um, in our culture, we get all the chemicals coming out of the things that we make. And Anyway, that was the water in Laodicea. Have you guys ever drank water from a creek? I wish really somebody has. Pete has. So if you drink water from a spring-fed creek right, right near the spring, it's usually really good water. But if you drink water from a creek that's been traveling for a while, is it the tastiest water you've ever tasted, Pete? No, but I'm glad it did. Right, right. It can really have some taste and not pleasant. And that's what was going on in Laodicea. It was said that people that would come from nearby cities they were so used to their water, and when they would come to Laodicea, and if they got a drink of water, that many people would instantly spit it out of their mouth because it was so disgusting. I took up some rabbit trail there, so let's get back on track. So God's given them an illustration. He's not talking about water. He's talking about their faith. He's talking about their life in Christ. He says, neither are you cold. Cold, actually, in meaning, not you're, you're not blaspheming me. You're not, um, you're not teaching the world atheism. You're not like, you're not outright just assaulting me. You're, but on the other hand, you're not hot. You're not, you're not even living for me. You're not serving me. You're not, you're, you're, you're simply just going through the motions. 
Because you're neither of these two. You're, you have a form of godliness, but lack the power thereof. You have a form of religion, but, but, it's, but you're not zealous. It's just something you do on Sunday morning. It's just something that, that you think about from time to time. But there is no zeal. What does God say? I will spew you out just like everyone spews the water out when they taste it here. There's something about lukewarm Christianity that's disgusting to God. And I would ask you this morning, are you zealous for the Lord? Are you zealously seeking after him? Are you, as the Puritans would say, are you chasing after him with violence? With, with, with all of your heart. We, we say that all the time, to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Is that you? Or do you have a form of godliness that's just okay with coming to church on Sunday and, and moving on about your life? That form of Christianity is repugnant to the God who saves. Why is it repugnant? Because if God truly saved you, your life is now to glorify him. It's not to keep on living as you've lived before. It's not to keep on putting all your priorities where the world puts their priorities. But it's to glorify God. Now, I, I, I want you to hear this really well. I want you to, this, this is the, um, uh, theologians would call this a central interpretive motif, which is long Words for this is what everything the, the lens that you should look at everything in life for if you're in Christ. It is, is this glorifying to God? It's in, it's in stark contrast to what it was before you knew Christ. What was the lens before you knew Christ? Do I like this? Is this going to benefit me? But the real question for those who are truly in Christ, does this glorify God? Do I desire him? Do I desire for his name to be glorified above all? So I think that's what happens in the lukewarm. And there are many who would say this this church of Laodicea, it's only a title church. It actually wasn't a church. Because there were no, they believed that there were no believers there. Because they were all lukewarm. They were doing Christian things. They just weren't in Christ. They just didn't know Christ. So what has led to this? And I think we find that in this very plainly in this next verse. Revelation 3.17 says, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I believe it was their riches that caught their eye. It was their riches that that caused them to, to not see correctly. It was their riches that provided for their comfort, for, for not just their needs, but, but also for the things that they liked, for the, the things that they, they had. And this very, uh, this very understanding or this very concept of, 
of who they were. The entire city was rich, and, and the church inside that city was rich. It didn't need things. It doesn't point out specific uh, heretical things that they were diving into because it's, it's assumed. It's assumed that they're already far enough down the road that we don't have to mention these things anymore, that they are way down the path. But they have money. Now hear me, when the Bible says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven, it says it's extremely difficult it's not impossible. And I think this is why it's extremely difficult, because it changes who you are. It changes the way you think. And this morning, what makes this so hard to digest, what makes this so hard to wrestle with is this, is that in America, you are rich. And I am rich. When the Bible speaks of the rich man, it's you. It's not the guy sitting next to you. It's you and the guy sitting next to you and your preacher. We are the rich. And our riches make us think that we need nothing. Um, in the... In the book Triumph of the Lamb, which is a, a, a commentary on the book of Revelation, it talks about something that I actually hadn't heard before, uh, but it was written on, or a, a, a PBS show was put on, and then a book later was written about it in 1997, and it was a term called affluenza. Um, it says, in the commentary, it says, affluenza was coined to describe a late 20th century North American syndrome. Um, Anne Sokoval, something defines it as an array of psychological maladies such as isolation, boredom, passivity, and lack of motivation engendering in adults, teenagers, and children by the possession of great wealth. And it's an unhappy condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and a waste, of waste resulting from the dog pursuit of more. We find this spoken of a little later in Revelation in 18 verse 3. It says, For all nations have drunk the wine of the passions of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. In verse 7 in chapter 18, it says, and she, and she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. There's something about being rich that causes us to think that we don't need God, that we don't need help. The strangeness that we think is normal in America, where we, we suffer from all these psychological conditions. I, I can't remember what the, I don't know what the statistics is at. I, I think it's almost 50% of people are on some 
some sort of psychological drug in the richest country in the world. Do you know where that percentage isn't high? In third world countries. I believe it's our riches that make us sick. We grow accustomed to all kinds of good things in America. Uh, I think we have the record for even the amount of trash we throw away. Why? Because the boxes keep showing up. The stuff keeps showing up. America has the, the problem with, we even have TV shows of the pack rats that, that save everything and acquire and acquire and acquire, and it's never enough. And the only time that you, you see these people oftentimes squirm isn't when someone twists scripture and isn't when theology is mangled, but when their piece of junk that's stored in the back room comes close to a dumpster, they're consumed with stuff. Friends, it's very likely that you and I are consumed with stuff. <clears throat> we turn our TVs on on Black Friday and we see people punching each other in the face. Over $50 off of a big screen TV. This is America. We, we have, there was a time in my life where we thought it was better to just, this is when I was newly married, said, you know, if we just keep the paper plate stocked, it's way easier. Because who wants to wash a plate? We just keep throwing away, we keep buying and throwing away, we, we keep accumulating and accumulating people people that I love they go to a store needing nothing and in fact in that, that book that was written um, I haven't read much of it but I, I read a little bit of it just to see what it was what it was about as I was speaking about it today and it tells stories of people who would go to the store and actually say before they go in they need nothing and come out with an entire shopping cart full because they found a deal. It's American consumerism. If you remember right after 9-11, what was the what was what was one of our chief responses? Politicians, the president, came on TV and he said, We have to keep on living. We have to shut they struck the Twin Towers. But we have to show them that we won. Go out and spend your money. Keep spending. And that's the answer over and over. Keep out, Go out there and spending. What's the answer to uh, the, the inflation and, and the, the economy problems? The problem when the, the economy starts to tank is because Americans stop spending like they're drunk monkeys with a credit card. That's me. I don't need 99% of the stuff I have. And to be honest with you, we, we, we go to the next best thing we want, and we use it for a couple of days, and we put it in the back room, and then it's on to the next thing we want.
all brothers and sisters around the world are looking, hoping they can come up with rice. They're trying to survive on a dollar a day. I've got the latest, got the latest radio. This is us. I believe one of the, the grave things that has happened to the church in America is precisely this. Our prosperity has destroyed us. Look at Second Chronicles 1, 7 through 12. Let's read about the wisest man who ever lived. It says, In that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father, and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before the people, for whom, for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? So God told Solomon to ask God for something, um, and here's this is Solomon's response. It's not, God, give me a million billion dollars, like what we would say when we were a kid. It's God, give me wisdom. And so God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. So God said, not only will I give you wisdom and knowledge, I'm going to give you a prosperity of which no one has had before. So, for all of you who aspire great wealth, Solomon should have been a happy guy, right? He not only had all the as much wisdom and knowledge more than any other person in the world, but he also now has everything he wants. Isn't that the key to happiness, Americans? All we have to do is look at Solomon at the end of his life. We look at Ecclesiastes, probably the most depressing book in the Bible, written by Solomon. It says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them from them. So what did, what did he do? He pretended he was American. He just got whatever he wanted. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all of my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. What this word means, young people, all of it was worthless. And a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
So he says, I had everything I wanted. I could get whatever I want. He found pleasure in his toil, pleasure in his work, because when he worked, he got whatever he wanted. And at the end of it all, he said, it's all meaningless. It's all a chasing after the wind. He further defines in in chapter 5, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. We see it played out before us. No matter how rich we become, we have to have more. We see it well illustrated in our politicians. Do you know why they keep scoundreling and keep stealing and manipulating and doing these things? Even after they have millions of dollars, do you know why they keep doing it? Because it's never enough. That thirst will never be quenched. And brothers and sisters, if your life is a chasing after fame and money and fortune, it will never quench your thirst. This is Solomon's deep issue. Solomon is extremely depressed because he looks back on his life and he thought he he wanted above all, he wanted to be happy. And everything he tried didn't work. And so he gives a solution to his problem. What is the solution to the problem? What's, what, what's the problem? He's chasing the wrong thing. We have lots of fake happiness from chasing the world. Solomon should have been chasing Christ. He should have been chasing God. It's only there that he would find true happiness. In Ecclesiastes 9, 9 through 10, it's, so here Solomon's the wisest man in the world. If you think you're wise enough to have tons and tons of money, I would say that idea is not wise. But look what he says. Here's his solution. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil, at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. You chase after the things of the world, you'll find that it's meaningless. So Solomon takes his advice, his own advice. Um, 1 Kings 1, 11, 1 through 8. We find that he starts to marry lots of women, has 700 wives, 300 concubines, begins to serve the gods of his foreign wives that he should have never taken. Brothers and sisters, I don't even know if Solomon's in heaven. The wisest man. Specifically, the pitfalls for those who do know theology. 
pitfalls for Reformed Baptists like me. And I believe it's the same as, partially the same with all of us. What are you chasing? This morning I, I, had, a, I had a discussion with a brother a couple of weeks ago. Expressed my disdain for dressing up. Do you know why I dress up? Because the Bible says that I should be of all things to all men. I should live appealing to my culture as long as it's not sinful. And this is what my culture expects. But many cultures couldn't afford these clothes. This morning, if you can't afford these clothes, you are in no way less in my eyes. In fact, I would rather sit down with people wearing camo and bibbed overalls because then I don't have any any surface levels, as much surface level stuff to get through. I just want to know you. What was Solomon's problem? Solomon's problem wasn't that he had stuff, it's that his stuff had him. Do you need this stuff? Are you using money to comfort yourself into lukewarmness? Are you are you doing as Solomon did? See, Solomon points out that he worked hard, and and we we appreciate that. We look into a world who it seems that young people, for the most part, don't want to work hard, and we appreciate hard work, and, and rightly so. And many of you. If not all of you, work hard for your families. And that's commendable unless it gets to the point where you're neglecting where you're supposed to be to give what's not needed. What's needed? What, what do I need to do? And I'm, I don't want to take crazy long. What do I need to do as a man for my family? I need to provide them food, clothes, and shelter. I don't have to provide them cars. I don't have to provide them the latest clothes. I don't have to provide them name brand clothes. And some of those, sometimes those things are okay. But if to do these things, so, and I understand because I, I grew up, I'm at an age where some of my friends said to me, they said these things, and I even agreed with them, and I do it to some extent. They said, I grew up with nothing, and so I'm going to work hard so my kids can have the things that I didn't. If you think that way this morning, hear me with all of the love I can give you. That is absolute silliness. Stop it. You're going to create lukewarm kids. Your kids should earn the things that they have. If they do no chores and yet they get all the latest things, you are creating lukewarm children. But if you are working to an extent where you're neglecting the discipling of your family, you're neglecting to spend time with them, you're consumed all the time with work, 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 work. And, and as men do, and I know because I'm a man, we look back and we say, well, I said I loved you because look at all the things I gave to you. That is silliness. Stop it. 
Stop working so that you can have an abundance. Turn your children's eyes to Christ. Turn your wife's eyes to Christ. Turn your eyes to Christ. You will be deceived. I'm, I'm, I look back to, I can't remember the, who the Puritan was, but he was teaching at a college and and as it was a, not a, just a biography they wrote of him. And they said that he made for his time, he, he, they, colleges wanted him so bad that they would just keep paying him more and more and more. And he made a substantial amount of money at the time. But people looked at him and they said they never saw this played out. They never saw, and so often we hear that in our culture too, where someone, they die and they have lots of money, yet they never had. The way they dressed, we thought they were scraping pie. What was interesting about this, this Puritan theologian who, who taught is they would pay him more and more and more, and when he died, uh, one day he passed away, and, and they started to go through his things. He, he lived in just a small room, and... They started to, you know, to, to clean it out and to figure it all out. And, and at the end of it, they tallied up and they discovered that at the end of all of this, he had about $5 to his name. Why? Because he glorified God and not indulging himself, not spending it on every little thing that he wanted, but, but it all went to the work of God's kingdom. And I'm not saying you have to do that. But if Christ today told you, sell all you have, come follow me. Is that viable? Are we lukewarm because of our riches? Is it good for us? Is it good for us to have bills coming up and we don't have any idea of how we're going to pay them? Actually, is. Some of the times in my life where I have glorified God in tears, when I have a big bill coming up and I have no way to pay it, and a guy I did work for three years ago decided that all of a sudden he decided that he was going to pay me. I went to the post office the day that I had to pay the bill. And here's a check. This is good for us, brothers and sisters. So, I know we're going along. Revelation 3, 18 through 19, here's the solution. If you're lukewarm, if you find that you're lukewarm today, here's what, what it says. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself in shame, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous. Repent. Be zealous for the Lord. Desire him more than you desire the latest gadgets. Desire him more than you desire the latest shirt. Desire him more than you desire stuff. 
be zealous, be the opposite of lukewarm. It's as a pastor, it's it's troubling. If many of you, I know some of you know that I, I don't sleep well. I've gotten lots of advice. You know how if, if do you want to help me sleep well? Anybody in here want to help me? Be zealous for the Lord. That will make me sleep well. Those sisters, what does it mean to be lukewarm? God says his church, his house is to be a house of prayer. Uh, a year or two ago, I decided I wanted to have a time of prayer before Sunday school. I regularly, regularly posted it. There was one person that came but the entire time. It's a flashing sign of a lukewarm church. In the American church, if a young man gets zealous for the Lord, we think he's an exception and he should be a preacher. It's not the case a lot of the time. He's just being a normal Christian. In America, we call him zealots, we call them extremists, we call them on fire, and typically within churches we have small groups that become zealous, and then the rest of the church looks at those as, well, those are the insiders. If you're a member of this church, you are an insider. Stop pretending you're not. Be zealous for Christ. Be zealous for your brothers and sisters. Revelation 3, 20-22, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne. Also, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, this isn't talking about uh, those pictures that you see where Christ is knocking gently on the door and there's not a doorknob on his side, that's just silliness. This is talking to the church. It's saying to the Laodicean church, if any of you would repent and stop this, you can come and be a part of the real church. You can have fellowship with me. This is speaking to a church. We, we just read just previous, that is Christ who opens the door and it's he who shuts it and nobody else. We can't forget about even within the same chapter and then apply this where we've forgotten about everything else and just say, well, God's just gently knocking on my heart, hoping I will come to my senses. That's not what this is teaching. But he's saying to a lukewarm church, will you repent? I'm not saying you have to live on baloney. But in America, we're well beyond that. Finally, let me share one last thing. When we get into the cycle of constantly consuming, constantly buying, constantly working, 
one thing it does to men, to men especially, is it begins to dull our time with the Lord. It begins to eliminate it. Paul Washer had a quote that, that resonated deeply with me uh, just a, a week or two ago. He said, one of the greatest attacks of the enemy is to make you busy, to make you hurried, to make you noisy, to make you distracted, to fill the people of God and the church of God with so much noise and activity that there is no room for prayer. There's no room for being alone with God. And there's no room for silence. There's no room for meditation. I believe this is what this is what when we begin to trust in our riches, when we get into the American lifestyle of working like crazy so we can have more stuff. This is usually what is neglected. And when this is neglected, we begin to not follow it. When we begin to not follow it, we begin to do silly things like Solomon. When we do silly things like Solomon, we find we're on the path of destruction. I spoke of this much in our culture. Some of you are already uneasy because that was too much silence. Is there silence in your life? I, I'm to a point, and I, some of you already know this, I'm to the point where I, I almost... I'm almost ready to say that I, I hate cell phones. Why? Because they just make us busy unnecessarily most of the time. I almost don't like regular phones, but I, I can see they have a place. Do you work all day and then come home and talk on your phone about work all night? You're neglecting your family. And for what? For more stuff? I hit on this hard because I think though we we see that that good work is good. But I think because of the culture, we oftentimes slingshot into the other ditch. And now we neglect all the things that lots of things we should be doing because we're consumed with work. We're consumed with stuff. Does anybody know whose phone number 845-4371 is? Pete right now. Yeah. Nobody knows? You probably don't. Maybe Pete would. That was my grandparents' phone number. Brody, you know what your grandparents' phone number is? You know why? Your smart device has made you dumb. <clears throat> I'm 
your 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 life. I don't know anybody else's phone number. I just know my grandparents' phone number. All of you can relate because you used to know lots of people's phone numbers, and now you don't. You also can't remember lots of things because you don't need to. Your brain is like your arms. If you don't exercise them, they don't work very well. Anyway, I'm going off the deep end. So, how do we get out from under this consumer lifestyle? So, it also translates, and I was going to hit on this, I'll do it briefly. It also translates into the church. People come and go, they, they find a church, they leave a church. They come here and they evaluate a church. I had I had people in my youth group come and tell me about a church, and I'll say, "Hey, I've been going to this new church." I'm like, "Oh, tell me about it," and they'll tell me about the music, and I'm like, "Okay, well, what was the message about?" Well, I'm not sure. Why did you pick that church? Well, their music is good. Oh, you're a consumer. You're an American. How do we evaluate a church? Am I going to be discipled here? Are they preaching the word of God? Does the Bible hold authority? Doesn't matter what the music sounds like. Hopefully they try. Hopefully they don't repeat seven words 11 times. Because we're not getting any teaching there, right? Anyway, are you busy? Are you too busy? One last final comment. When I was a kid, we had a phone in our house, and when it rang, we picked it up. You know why? We might not be there in an hour. That translates into now everyone has cell phones. If it rings, it has voicemail. You don't have to pick it up. And it's actually good. If you're busy with your family, it's good. If I'm with my wife, I love all of you, but not as much as I love my wife. So she gets my attention. If I'm discipling my children, this is more important than most things in the world. So they get my attention. Just backing up, I'm not trying to rant. We have to have priorities. So I'd ask you, the things that you do, is it because of the culture? Is it because of consumer mindset? Or is it because it's glorifying to God? (coughs) We have great wealth. Pete remembers a time where he didn't go to the store and get an orange. We have all kinds of food varieties. We can go to the Chinese place and eat some amazing... Uh, I remember Luke Luke said last week, he said, that's a flavor I've never experienced before. And he did because, like myself, Luke is rich. Is it making us lukewarm? Or is it glorifying God? Bible says to repent. It's 
morning as my toes bleed. I pray that I repent. I pray that we repent. We glorify God together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for my brothers and my sisters. Father, would you take the blinders off of our eyes? Would you help us to see in truth? Would you help us to not be comforted to the point that we begin to believe that we are sufficient? We can take care of our own problems. Father, let that never translate into our sin. We think by our goodness we can somehow solve the problem of being reconciled to a holy God. Father, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.